Mark Tig and Paul Rowan are the authors of the most popular Irish sports book of 2020 without a shadow of a doubt. But in many ways, champagne football isn't about sports. Hello and welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad. This is our main show, the original show, our feature interview of the week. In case you missed it, Irishman Abroad has moved to three shows per week. Every Friday, you can hear myself and our US correspondent, Marion McKeown, try to make sense of what's happening over beyond in America. And on Tuesdays, the greatest Irish athlete of all time, Sonia O'Sullivan, joins me for our running podcast that aims to go beyond the miles. Trust me, if Sonia can get me running, she can do the same for you. To hear it all, simply become a member over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. There is no obligation. Cancel any time you like, but for a five or a month or one annual payment with a 15% discount, you can gain access to everything, including our back catalogue of more than 400 episodes, spin-off series and live events. Well, today, Mark Ty joins me to discuss this massively successful book, The Man John Delaney, where his dubious version of ethics emerged from, the fear he engendered in others, and how maybe the true villains of this piece still walk amongst us. Because, as I said, for me this isn't really a typical sports story. This is an examination of a personality, personalities, groupthink, power dynamics, legitimacy, and what corruption can look like. As I said, this is just a 20-minute extract of a wide-ranging, hour-long conversation I had with Mark about that and much more, including Mark himself and his own background. To hear the full thing, to support this show, all we need you to do is pop over and take two minutes to sign up. I promise you, you won't regret it. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Mark Tide, thank you so much for doing Irish Man Abroad. Champagne football, John Delaney and the betrayal of Irish football, the inside story is the full title of the book. Uh, let me ask you how you arrived at that. Uh, I don't know if I've heard you talk about the decision to include that second part to the title, the betrayal of Irish football. Is that how you saw it? Was that something that was in your mind throughout this or was that just something that you arrive at when you're thinking of the cover? Yeah, it was near the end. I thought the first part of the, the title was was a hard one to settle on. We had a few different ideas. Well, we wanted it football related and uh, I pitched a few kind of, you know, like plays on the words foul and, and so on, you know, like foul play or professional fouls. And one, another one kind of I thought was very cheeky was champagne football, you know, to 
give an idea of, of like we always wanted to start the book with um i'd always wanted to start the book with the, the 50th birthday party it was just such a a lavish moment and it was really the height of john delaney's power and the fact that he was living this champagne lifestyle while the football that the irish team were playing were was far from champagne football so the complete polar opposite so when when the our publishers and penguins saw that like suggested champagne football they just fell in love with it and then there's always actually concern when you have, when you write a book about someone and you put them on the front cover that um surprisingly i suppose a lot of people think that oh he might john delaney might have a role in the book or he might be getting some of the proceeds so we want to be we want to be very clear on that you know that this is not you know a piece that john delaney has played a role in or he has any part in or he's benefiting from it in any way so i suppose you know yeah we, we firmly in our story like no to give a spoiler i suppose of some sorts is that yeah john delaney has portrayed irish football in in the way he used and abused his position so we wanted to kind of just make that crystal clear that you know that this this is kind of going you know no holes barred you know to to to, to show how that was done so that's why you know for a guy who professed to love his country to be a nationalist but to love the sport so much and to where it came to a situation where it was on the brink of bankruptcy and where you know huge amounts of money had gone into his back pocket from the fei's you know very tight financial situation you know betrayal i think speaks to that very powerfully so that's why i went on the cover and went in the title yeah i mean it is a betrayal of the position the the trust that was given but it's a really unique type of betrayal and a really unique flouting of responsibility and abuse of power the decision to go with that birthday party which for people that don't know his 50th birthday party james bond themed eighty thousand euro this huge party at mount julia costs twenty six thousand of that goes to mount julia 25 goes to uh, frank if you don't know frank he does a wedding planner does weddings he got 25k another 7k on chauffeur driven cars and another 3k three and a half k on helicopters that never took off you said that that was the peak of his powers and that was kind of emblematic of the man you said you want to go with that as the first chapter right away is that because that party speaks to the psychology of a man who would do what this man did like you say him and Dunphy looked at it like he couldn't believe his eyes yeah yeah like like Eamon Dunphy like the the kind of the doyen of Irish football pundits on TV himself and John Giles were both at the party and I suppose the, the party spoke to so many different aspects of the John Delaney story you know one obviously the, the lavish spending of money that wasn't his and that the FAI spent that 80,000 he repaid 50 of it then we have you know his you know the narcissism you know that it's all about John Delaney he's 0050 there there was um, you know especially made up posters you know with the James Bond tuxedo and it's John Delaney 0050 with the logo altered you know to have his name in it got the ice sculptor of a, a Walter PPK pistol you know a giant thing that you know wouldn't look out of place at a I don't know a rapper's uh, party or something you know so what's it doing at the at the 50th birthday party of a football administrator and the fact that you have all these people like um, Alexander Seferin the president of UEFA was there, you know, a, bit, a lot of the UEFA bigwigs were there. The fact Dunphy and Giles were there, the, the most senior kind of football pundits in the country. And that shows how Delaney had courted these different power bases, you know, both in the media and in the football world. 
And there they all were paying their respects to John Delaney in rural Kilkenny at a golf club. You know, all of them, I've seen the photos where they're all walking in past the pyrotechnic uh, flames bursting out with all clutching their birthday gifts to, to give to John Delaney. And then it was almost like an Irish um, wedding in that his then fiance and English and him, when they come into this uh, giant gazebo, which the it's made up to look like kind of an ice stage uh, with white ostrich feathers coming out of the the table settings you know john and emma come in and everyone stands up to put them under pressure this kind of anthem of irish football you know ole 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 and they clap him up to the table you know and uh he reads out you know there's a tribute from a video tribute where alex ferguson speaks the you know the greatest manager in, in recent british football you've got a, a letter from the irish president michael d higgins so yeah and you've government ministers and senior politicians all there so it was just so emblematic of you know where Delaney was and and his different power bases and all that he courted so assiduously through the years to to make sure that he was unchallenged as that figurehead and then the, the the guy who ruled Irish football with a you know with a, an iron fist. An, an iron fist is the word, right? It as the book continues, and I, I don't need to urge the listeners to go and get it at this point. It's a bestseller. It's flying off the shelves. It seems like the sporting book to have this year in your back pocket. I just spoke to Sonia O'Sullivan saying that she bought it for her dad. Oh, and she's going to buy an audio book for herself to listen well, to. Well, if we get one, well, hopefully Penguin will commission it. We haven't got that OK, but I'm hoping to hear news on that soon. Oh, yeah. right. OK, sorry. But uh, I guess, you know, as I read it, I am a huge football fan, but I, I really got the impression that there's a there's this has been written so that anybody with an interest in human beings power and personality and political dynamics of power will have an interest in reading this and as much as i'm a fan of football i'm probably a bigger fan of that i really am fascinated by people and what motivates them it's kind of what irishman abroad is about in and of itself and all i could do throughout the book was wonder as to what's underneath it and as you say the party is emblematic and it kind of reflects this overleaping ego that was that had been fed to this bloated point that he would throw a party that was funded by to a degree of 30k by a voluntary organization that is in major financial trouble but i thought it was really interesting that tony o'donoghue said something that i i drew from those first two chapters right away that in essence a lot of the early behavior the starting point of all of this was a push by john delaney to reinstill some pride in his family name and his father's name do you go mm-hmm. along with tony o'donoghue on that yeah like i wasn't there back in 1996 the what they call the night of the long knives and i yeah i, I love what you said there like i don't see this as a football book i don't like it being pigeonholed that like that but it yeah it, obviously there's a lot of football in it but it's more about power and the use of power and you know how irish society has, has dealt with someone who you know, was going to use it in such a way that would really benefit himself and would punish people who didn't go along with him. So, yeah, like we, so that's why we started off with the uh, with the party, which is kind of near to modern day. But then we wanted to go back and tell the full John Delaney story. And you can't tell the John Delaney story without talking about Joe Delaney, his father, this 
gregarious kind of Del Boy character, you know, uh, with a sparkle in his eye at all time. A much loved figure, but always, you know, doling out tickets. He was the FBI treasurer. But then Veronica Guerin, this, you know, am- amazing journalist in the Sunday Independent, exposed him for getting up to all sorts of hijinks in terms of what was happening with Irish uh, World Cup tickets and two consecutive World Cups and how Joe Delaney was dealing with ticket touts and huge amounts of money uh, gone missing from the FAI and Joe Delaney had to repay it. It was a complete mess and Joe Delaney basically had to leave the FAI in disgrace in this this famous night in the Dublin Hotel back in 1996 where all the media were, were camped out there, live updates on uh, on Irish TV. And, you know, beside Joe's, uh, beside Joe, was the figure of you know young John Delaney in his in his late twenties, and he would very much have seen what was happening to his father and dealt with helped set up some of the interviews that Joe would have done that night with some of the, his favourite journalists who we interviewed then for the book. And as you say, yeah, Tony Donahue or Donahue, who's you know followed Irish football for for the last couple of decades, said he always felt it was kind of Shakespearean in the way that uh, John was uh, driven to kind of uh, almost seek revenge or to restore the family name or the family honour. And you can see that even I was looking at the, some of the entries on the FBI website about Joe Delaney. It's all laudatory, and I'm sure John played a role in that, you know, making sure that, you know, almost history was rewritten, you know, to make sure that the Delaney's uh, had pride of place, you know, and that the the, the more murkier side of, of things were, were, were brushed under the carpet. But, uh, you know, I think, so John was very much driven by Joe's, uh, I, think, I think he sought Joe's approval and wanted, you know, that drove him on to, be, to, to further and higher uh, places, you know, and that's where you see John, you know, and in many ways surpassed what Joe did. And but, you know, like Icarus, I suppose he he flew far too close to the sun and um, you know came crashing down to far more spectacularly than his father. But he obviously thought that his father had done no wrong and that he was hard done by. I mean, it's plain to any dog in the street that running a ticket operation out of a hotel room with a suitcase full of cash and dealing with ticket touts called, what was it, Jimmy the Greek or something? Yeah. Uh, so George the Greek. George the yes. Greek, who, yes. you know, essentially robbed him. These are running ticket money through his personal account is wrong to anybody who handles their own finances or has been involved in their local community games charity why did the Delaney family have this bizarre creative version of accounting morals yeah I, I think at the, at the, the their net point is I think that Joe basically repaid all the money that went missing so you know they're saying look nobody lost out here there was a lot of hijinks but you know the money was repaid so that's their their starting off point you know and you know that has to be made clear the other thing and that was in the background would be that everyone knew in the FAI that this kind of sort of carry on it wasn't a, it wasn't hidden you know like if you went into the hotel it was in, in Florida the, the hotel where Joe Delaney was set up in his hotel room you know it wasn't a secret that you had to go up to Joe Delaney and as you say he was operating out of a suitcase with you know fistfuls of dollars and whatever other currencies he had so it was kind of an open secret that this was the way it was carried on and the FAI okay, it was largely a voluntary voluntary run organization in the 90s and you know, you had a lot of these kind of what we call big beasts on the board. It was kind of like a, one of the members called it like Afghanistan, where you have feudal lords fighting for control. You know, some people from the amateur sports, some people from League of Ireland, uh, all butting heads against each other. And, you know, there was no proper organization underneath that. 
So I think that, that that's the nub of the Delaney's stance. I think that you know everyone knew what was going on. Joe took things in hand. He was doing his best. Uh, it all went a bit mad, but he paid the money back in the end. And out of all that as well, I think which is a running theme through the book is the, the Delaney's disgust and distrust of the media. You know that the fact that the Sunday Independent through Veronica Gearan had uh, exposed what had happened and brought things to a head back in the in 1996. That was something I think that John was always um, cognizant of, how powerful the media were. And so when when he eventually did rise to power in the FAI, you know, he his overriding uh, directive to all the other directors and staff would be, don't leak to the media, keep things secret, keep things tight. And, you know, that was his downfall eventually because, you know, when there wasn't a proper governance and oversight, all sorts of carry on was going on in terms of what John was doing with the FAI's finances, both at a personal level and at a structural level that the FAI's finances were you know, close to insolvency for, for, for most of the last decade. The Irishman running a broad challenge for Jigsaw isn't like your normal fundraising drives. It's different because everyone is different. The mental health challenges that you and our young people are facing right now are not the same as anyone else's. You are running your own personal race. So that's why we've designed our challenge in such a way that no matter what your activity level, no matter how fast or slow you're going to do this, you can get started and run your race to your capacity. Start logging miles and getting sponsors and getting on board to raise more vital funds for Jigsaw, the National Centre for Youth Mental Health. Set up your fundraising page on idonate.ie and connect it to the Irishman Running Abroad Challenge and start Join me on this journey, doing whatever distance feels right for you. My target is 2,000 kilometres in one year. I know. What will yours be? Listen to Irishman Running Abroad with me and Sonia O'Sullivan each week and come with us on this ride towards raising much-needed funds for Jigsaw and their mental health services for young people across all communities back in Ireland. Everyone is different. We don't know what each other's race might be. But with the Irishman Running Abroad Challenge, we don't have to do it alone. There's a monthly event to keep you motivated. There's our weekly chats on the podcast to get you on track. And I'll be there with you every step of the way. Don't just run for yourself. Run for Jigsaw. And you can make a massive difference to the lives of young people across Ireland who need our help right now. Okay, well... You know, there's an awful lot I could ask, Mark. There's there's so much that we could get through here. And probably the uh, dozens of hours of interviews that you've done over the last few weeks has probably made you realise, oh, my God, people have a lot more questions that this book could, you know, you could have a follow up to this book just based on, you know, some of the really interesting conversations you've had about it since. But I, I hope I'm not asking you anything that you've been asked before. That's never my aim here. But, you know, John Delaney isn't just a one off. I mean, to me, John Delaney comes about because there's a multitude of John Delaney type characters in organisations up and down our country and in our history, that he wasn't defining a new playbook. Essentially, he was reading off a hymn sheet that was ultimately designed by Charles J. Hockey and the likes. This kind of mafioso move of 
keep it in house, keep it close knit and crush any dissension comes from, you know, there's a long line and culture of that. Do you think that he he drew from others that he saw around him? And if if he did, then who were those people? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, like, if you go back to the famous Barry Egan do- documentary that the Sunday Independent did um, back in 2014, you know, you had John Delaney boasting about how Fianna Fáil had approached him and had looked for him to to run as a, a, a you know a TD candidate. And you know, you could very much see John Delaney kind of as the old school Fianna Fáil TD because he was just a, such an astute politician, you know. Plumassing uh, and and helping the grassroots, you know, and attending the grassroots concern. Um, I suppose the, the, the number one person that that the two people that John I think based himself on were yet yeah, his father Joe, in terms of he knew how access to tickets guaranteed power and loyalty from so many people. But also, then we had Pat Hickey, you know, the president of the the Irish Olympic uh, Council of Ireland, who's um, again a, a supreme politician in sports administration. Who you know a lot of the big sports. Big sports, excluding football, under John Delaney, they didn't like Pat Hickey and the way he ran things. But, but Pat Hickey would court the the small uh, um, Olympic bodies. You know, uh, people say you know they keep the tiddlywinks people on side, never mind everyone else. But he he garnered enough votes, and uh, you know definitely John Delaney learned from from Pat Hickey, and you know Pat Hickey had anointed John Delaney as as his successor, and they were very close. But uh, and you could see how Pat Hickey then internationally as well courted people in the, the, the Olympic Federation movement and John Delaney saw how that worked and he did the same with UEFA so he you know he courted uh, people like Alexander Seferin um, and the new up-and-coming star and before that Michel Platini um, John Delaney would have had him over helped him you know set up his English language courses even in Dublin so he was very he, he was very clever in you know saying where, where does power flow from in, in sport and you know it, it flows by basically from two directions, from the grassroots locally in your country, and also then from from international level, uh, from the, your your federation, which in in football's case is the UEFA. So Delaney, you know, was a supreme politician, and, and yeah, we, you, you, there's an archetype out there, you know, that John Delaney matches, but he was just such a unique and individual character in, in so many other ways, and you know that he was this kind of gregarious fellow who'd be singing rebel songs in pubs and would be courting the media, the celebrity media, which was just like a, fa- a fascinating aspect of him, you know, where, you know, he'd be doing the, the Barry Egan documentaries or going on the chat shows with Brendan O'Connor and Ray Darcy while avoiding answering questions to the football correspondents who would be looking to ask difficult and probing questions about the FAI's finances. So on the one hand, yeah, there's an archetype there and he, he definitely has his models for his behaviour. You're, we all have to understand and we all as Irish people have to accept some form of responsibility in that we allowed people like this to exist or that looking the other way results in these people flourishing time and time again, whether it's the guardie or members of the church who knew full well. Mm-hmm. There are people that knew full well what was going on with mm-hmm. this man. Obviously, you're sympathetic enough to them in, in the book, but there's board members who are tasked with keeping this man in check, who fail in that responsibility. 
are, are they not the true bad guys of this? That's that's definitely a, a, a valid point of view, yeah. And you know, I, I speak sometimes with John O'Regan, who's um, some people call him a mini John Delaney down in Kerry. You know, he controls Kerry football and he's helped Kerry football grow. And uh, you know, he's very loyal to John Delaney. And when I'd speak to him, he'd make that point. You know, look, John would have his issues, and you know, it, it was up to the board members to say stop, and they failed. You know, he wasn't the only guy in the room when these decisions were made. And I suppose. What we tried to show in the book was how, you know, a lot of these people, very competent people, like Nevo Donoghue, who was a former Secretary General in the Department of Social Protection, is the biggest government department in Ireland, you know, in, in terms of staff, you know, she, a very, it, it takes up a third of the Irish budget, goes on social welfare. She's a very competent woman, you know, um, a, a very senior civil servant. She came in belatedly, but, and she, she made points like, why are, are the board only getting the, the minutes and updates on the day of the board meeting? And again, this goes back to John Delaney's overriding directive that we can't be letting stuff leak out. So yeah, I'm going to kind of keep you in the dark. I'll give you this stuff needs to know on the morning of the meeting so you can't be leaking into the media. But she, she pointed out that this, this was crazy stuff. How can the board be giving uh, oversight if it doesn't have a time to digest the information and prepare questions? But ultimately... You know, and she was the first woman on the board. A lot of people have pointed out you know, this is just an overridingly male uh, culture, you know, where the, the alpha male and John Delaney was just allowed to, to boss everyone else around and crush any dissent. So like, it would have been expecting a lot maybe for someone like Neva Donahue to call stop. And she'd been in the FAI on the FAI council, which is like their, their parliament for over 20 years. But, you know, she definitely had concerns. And when she eventually resigned, she kind of voiced them. But in the two years she was there, she wasn't able to, to put a stop, to put a, put a halt to his gallop. Um, and there was a lot of people that failed like that, you know, very competent people that came on the FAI or, or and people then that, like one of the people I think that, that left very early, telling his hair for state was Brendan Dillon. He's a solicitor. He was in UCD. He was on the FAI board and he resigned in 2004. He didn't like what John Delaney was doing. Uh, didn't like what Fran Rooney, who was then chief executive, was doing. He alerted the um, Deloitte and the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement to concerns he had about how the finances were being managed by John Delaney. And so, yeah, like John Delaney was really hiding in plain sight because people had voiced concerns. The, the proper authorities had been alerted to concerns going right back to the the, the start of his, um, his reign. You know, he became temporary CEO in 2004. Dion Fanning, who was the Sunday Independent soccer correspondent, asked him, you know, are you taking over so you can hide stuff in the FAI's accounts? Like that's, that's, that's just, that, when I saw that clipping, I was like, oh my God, like, you know, everyone kind of had their suspicions and it was out, like, what a question to ask them when coming in. And, you know, John Delaney goes, oh, we've got Deloitte in here, one of the best auditors in the world. And, you know, as we know and find out to our horror, Deloitte were not doing their jobs. Um, and, and, you know, they'd gone stale, whatever was happening through the years, they were not asking proper questions. They were not keeping an eye on the FAI's finances to a proper professional degree and there's a lot more to flow on that uh, I think uh, in terms of consequences so there's a there's a lot of failures around yeah and you, you can't just pin everything on John Delaney. Well I'm glad to hear you say that because like, I, I don't want to be involved in a pylon uh, of sorts but like you know fair cop like we all know now thanks to you guys and the work that you've done with Paul Roan it's, it's unbelievable and it gives me hope, right? And it gives a lot of people hope that this kind of thing can be called out because let's face it, you guys and your colleagues lived in fear of 
what this guy could do to you. And that was what he wanted, right? The, the sense that utter something against me at your peril was a lot of his shtick. I've never been able to get out of guys like Ken Early or Paul Howard or anyone to really kind of concretely give me examples of times when he said or issued proceedings to silence journalists. Do you have any to hand? Well, like one, one we highlighted in the book was the case of Paul Highland, who was, you know, one mm-hmm. of Delaney's biggest adversaries in the media after, you know, Veronica Guerin's death. He would have worked with Veronica Guerin and some yeah. of those stories. You know, he, he knew Delaney was a bad one, you know, <laughs> and he, 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 he got stuff wrong, unfortunately for him. You know, he report in the book, you know, he said Joe Delaney was at this ticketing meeting after he was gone and John had brought him back in kind of into the fold and it was wrong. And. John came down on him like a ton of bricks. You know, you could see he was even arguing over whether the compensation was, you know, within 500 euro this or that. Today's episode is presented to you in association with our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw.ie. This year, I've committed to run 2000 kilometers for Jigsaw.ie. Come on over to idonate.ie and support me in the Irishman Running Abroad Challenge or tune in on Tuesdays with Sonia O'Sullivan and myself where she coaches me towards this lofty goal. I think lofty is a good enough word to describe it. Come on over to patreon.com to get yourself access to the rest of this conversation with Mark. You don't want to miss the rest of this. It really goes a few directions I wasn't expecting and we get in a little bit deeper into Mark's own story as well. There's tons over there for you to enjoy. Come over and have a look. No obligation. Cancel anytime you like. And as I said, there's a 15% discount going right now if you want to sign up for a full year of podcasts in one lump sum. Uh, my thanks to Brian Connolly for his production, to John Marr for his extra research, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. And thank you for listening to this taster of this week's episode. I'd love if you came over and listened to the rest.